1: I'm Patience Adamu.
2: And I'm Curtis Vermont. And this is The Drip, a podcast about political decision-making during a racial revolution. Stay
1: tuned as we analyze Canadian news and Black issues on a weekly
2: basis. And if you like what you hear, subscribe.
1: On this week's episode, we discuss some of the top headlines from the week of June 13th, including...
2: In disarray, the Green Party gives leader Animi Paul an ultimatum. Doug Ford brings in a younger, more diverse cabinet ahead of the 2022 election. Canada getting its first BIPOC Muslim Supreme Court judge. Woo-hoo.
1: Amazon finally gets called out for treating workers worse than cattle. Another set of Toronto cops get charged for use of force against another black man. Oh, another one, eh? Juneteenth becomes a federal holiday in the United States and plenty more.
2: To kick off our politics segment, the Green Party has handed leader Annamie Paul an ultimatum, denounce comments from the former staffer accusing MPs of anti-Semitism, or face a confidence vote on her leadership on July 20th. That's my birthday. Oh, that's soon. Mm -hmm. Now, we touched on this last week, but it's become a bit of a developing story, hasn't it, Patience? Yeah. So if you haven't heard yet to our listeners, the Israeli-Palestine conflict has led to a series of unfortunate events for leader Paul. First, she made a statement that many thought wasn't adequate about the conflict. Then her former senior staffer, Noah Zatzman, basically threatened his own MPs in the next election. Hmm. And she lost an MP over it, or at least that's the rationale that was given first. But that rationale is clearly in question now, considering that that former Green MP, Jenica Atwin, went to the Liberals and the Liberals have a similar, albeit more sophisticated, position on the Israeli-Palestine conflict. You follow? Interesting. That led to the rest of Annamie's MPs essentially turning against her, and that prompted the party leadership, its governing council, to start removal proceedings against her. They've since watered down their attacks, but there's still tension, as I alluded to with that looming vote on July 20th. Like, yo, fam, it hasn't even been a year yet, and look how much mess there is, fam.
1: Bear mess. Bear
2: mess! <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so all that, that led to an emergency leadership meeting uh, this week where Paul survived a vote that could have kickstarted the process of removing her from the leadership. While the non-confidence vote was successfully neutralized, as things stands now, Annie will have to condemn Zatzman's comments in a news conference, and that's something she's so far refused to do, saying, quote, Often, when people like me are elected or appointed to positions of senior leadership, the rules of the game seem to change. Suddenly, there needs to be more oversight, more yep. accountability, more yep. and swifter and more severe sanctions. Yep. This is something that I will resist. I don't need a bespoke set of rules established for me, and I haven't asked for any special accommodation what I'm seeking is the same freedom as previous leaders to fulfill my role on behalf of the members of our party who elected me. Collaboration and collegiality doesn't require bowing down. It doesn't mean being brought to heel or giving into ultimatums, end quote. So it looks like there will be a showdown. For the record, the letter that prompted the meeting contained a scathing review of Paul's leadership style that Any person with a modicum of an ability to think critically would call sexist and racist in describing her leadership style. It was written by Beverly Eart, the federal council's Manitoba representative, and Kate Story, the party's fund representative, saying, quote, Since her election as leader, Annamie Paul has acted with an autocratic attitude of hostility, superiority, and rejection, failing to assume her duty to be an active, contributing, respectful, attentive member of federal council, end quote. I mean, I read that and I say, but that sounds like most leaders I know. So what the problem is? Honestly. The letter continues, quote, she has attended few council meetings and when in attendance, has displayed anger in long, repetitive, aggressive monologues and has failed to recognize the value of any ideas except her own. So, so let me get this straight. The leader of the party has to do what you say and has to be nice. Again, where, where else does this happen? This is so bad. <laughs> the letter was so bad, so racist, and so sexist that Green MPs and others disavowed it. These are the same people who were trying to come for her in this meeting. Okay, good. Story, who wrote the letter, later tried to walk it back through a leaked email saying, quote, in a spirit of reconciliation between federal counselors and the GPC leader, please delete the allegation document. Are you stupid? Y'all see how racism and sexism can work? Yo. What Is think? she stupid? What do you think? What do you think? No, you can't do that.
1: You can't lash out at someone, tearing them down, and then after people have realized that that you really came hard for her, you went in on her, asked people to ignore the fact that, that you just did that publicly. And, you know, I, I think Annamie's in a really, really tough, tough position. I mean, certainly... You know, it's clear that, that the comments were sexist and racist. Mm. It's also, I mean, the Green Party doesn't have the greatest reputation of being inclusive of people who are BIPOC, mm. right? So, uh, I'm, although I'm surprised that, um, that that they would be as sexist in, in that statement, given that it was written by two women, um, I'm not surprised that when you're talking about a Black woman you compound the the sexist comments within the racism you know what i'm saying so it's not just that she's a a strong female leader a strong woman leader it's that she's a angry black woman yeah and that doesn't surprise me in the least i'm I'm really I i feel really really badly for anime because like you said it hasn't even been a year this party has not given her a fair go not at all and even though she did skirt the um efforts to have her removed from leadership she still has to deal with a party that has a lot of infighting and uh a party of of people who uh are are going to continue to blame her for Atwin's move and and like you said Atwin did not really move to a party that has a really strong stance on 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 any th- on, on that Palestine. same issue yeah. right Atwin moved because she wanted to move. Fam, move and and keep your mouth. I mean, I mean, she probably couldn't keep her mouth shut, but move and and don't don't blame it on the leader that literally just got into power.
2: Like I agree with you, but at the same time, politics is politics. So she's gonna like j- yeah. wouldn't had to say what she had to say. But I, I agree with you. I hear you. Yeah. Um. You know what I'll say is this. Um. You know, Adamie is deciding not to capitulate and you know what I- i'm I'm about it um that's one two part of the reason i think she's not is because at least one of those two women on the governing council is going to soon be either stepping down or being removed replaced at the end of the day good uh and i would hope i would assume that it's you know somebody of enemies choosing uh as right. the leader of the party you got to have that party under control fam so yeah Hopefully, this doesn't have to be a problem moving forward, and um, maybe a lot of the racist issues within that party are removed with these two women, at least, giving it energy. But we'll see. Jumping to our next story. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has nominated the Honourable Mahmoud Jamal as the next member of the Supreme Court of Canada. In his statement, he says, quote, I know that Justice Jamal, with his exceptional legal and academic experience and dedication to serving others, will be a valuable asset to our country's highest court. And I can't help but agree. The fully bilingual Justice Jamal was appointed to the Court of Appeal for Ontario in 2019 and appeared in 35 appeals before the Supreme Court of Canada on civil, constitutional, criminal and regulatory issues the first person of color to be nominated to Canada's top court. He also taught constitutional law at McGill and administrative law at Osgoode Hall. Jamal will replace Justice Rosalie Abella, currently the longest-serving Supreme Court Justice, who will retire from the court on July 1, her 75th birthday. Jamal was born in Nairobi, Kenya in 1967 in a family originally from India. He said in his questionnaire that his family moved to the UK in a search of a better life in 1969, and in 1981, his family settled in Edmonton, where he attended high school. He's quoted as saying, I was raised at school as a Christian, reciting the Lord's Prayer and absorbing the values of the Church of England, and at home as a Muslim, memorizing Arabic prayers from the Quran and living as part of the Ismaili community. Like many others, I experienced discrimination as a fact of daily life. As a child and youth, I was taunted and harassed because of my name and religion or the color of my skin. End quote. Just wow. I mean, Patience, what are your thoughts on this so far?
1: This is massive. Mm -hmm. With a nine-member Supreme Court to have the first person of color... The first person from the continent of Africa.
2: Uh-huh.
1: This will transform the Supreme Court of Canada. And I mean this not just because it will change the, the decisions, because I do think that the decisions will take a little bit longer to change, especially because we're seeing Jamal replace Abella, and Abella, as a Jewish woman, was. a a bit of a trailblazer in her own right. So the fact that Jamal is replacing Abella means that, okay, we we may not be moving as forward as we would like to. Mm -hmm. However, given that every single Supreme Court judge, whether they agree with the the majority or they disagree with the majority, has the opportunity to write out their decision Mm -hmm. and contextualize their decision, whether they agree or disagree, um, in Canadian constitutional law. Yeah. I think we are going to see a different perspective that's on it. Canadian constitutional law that's exactly and that yeah, that is the key that is like what I have been dying for, and I think trudeau was was thoughtful in nominating justice Jamal mm-hmm. because we need someone who has this dual perspective, as you mentioned, Jamal has a bit of a Christian perspective because mm-hmm. he went to school, he went to a Christian school. Yep. And has a perspective of being a Muslim because he's from the Ismaili community. He also has the perspective, I don't know if, if a lot of people understand the Ismaili history, but Ismailis had to leave had to leave Kenya, Uganda, and a lot of places in East Africa because there was being persecuted. Mm-hmm. So he has a lot of this this perspective that we have seen less of in the Supreme Court.
2: It's yeah. definitely a reflection. I mean, what I was going to say is is a reflection of the times. I think it's more than that. It's in that two of the major conflicts of our time, challenges of our time, if we don't want to call them conflicts, is the clash between Christianity and Islam, especially in the West. Mm -hmm. And the clash of refugees, again, reaching the shores of the West because of many... World issues like climate change, but effectively, these are the two major issues of our time, and we now have somebody on the bench with a more up-to-date and I would argue more nuanced perspective on both.
1: Absolutely, I I like that you said up-to-date. Up-to-date. I I like because it really is. It's it's the ripple effects of those conflicts of those challenges that we're seeing um, impact the. the, I mean, our our entire populist but mm-hmm. certainly the justice system. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. So fundamentally, you know, uh Justice Jamal will be on the bench until 75. I don't know if you uh have seen the photo that is circulating uh of him, but he he looks like a sharp um I mean this guy looks like a god. I'm not even going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> so he's going to be there um making a positive impact for decades to come and we are very pleased about that. Congrats, Justice Jamal. Jumping to our final story of the day, our provincial story, in an effort to stop the bleeding from poor decision-making ahead of the 2022 provincial election, Premier Doug Ford this week ejected several rural cabinet ministers in favor of several younger and diverse ones. Top of the list for replacement, Mary Lee Fullerton, his clearly incompetent long-term care minister who oversaw a 10-month-long ordeal where hundreds of long-term care homes suffered major COVID-19 outbreaks killing 4,000 residents and at least 12 staff members. Oh my gosh. gosh. Underscoring her incompetence, a commission literally found that there was no established plan to protect long-term care residents during the pandemic. Hmm. She doesn't quite get a demotion though, because she's being moved to the province's third biggest portfolio as Minister of Children and Youth and Community Services. Oh, so she can go mess that up. Well... (laughs) we'll see how that goes. And, and she's being replaced by, do you know who she's being replaced by? No. The St. Bart's God himself. No way! Juan Phillips is back in the cut. You might recall him as Ford's second finance minister in less than two years until December when he got caught vacationing to St. Bart's. With his staff straight lying, a man's.
1: This the guy with the yeah. He was he was lying about where he was posting he was social
2: media videos to suggest <laughs> he was still in Ontario at the time. Oh my gosh! He resigned in disgrace after an impromptu apology broadcast live from Pearson. So yeah, core members of Ford's pandemic response, though, including Finance Minister Peter Bethlenfalvy, Health Minister Christine Elliott, Solicitor General Sylvia Jones, and Education Minister Stephen Lecce, will remain in their posts. I honestly, like, most of that seemed reasonable to me. I really thought Sylvia Jones would be out.
1: Honestly, when all you have is incompetence to choose from, what are you going to do? <laughs> I, that, that's a very good
2: point. Some new ministers include Stan Cho, MPP for Willowdale, who becomes Associate Minister of Transportation, reporting to Minister Mulroney. Uh, there's also Parm Gill, who is the MPP for Milton, becoming the Minister of Citizenship and Multiculturalism. And just for example of youth, we've got 32-year-old Dave Pacini, MPP for Northumberland, Peterborough South, becoming the Minister of Environment, and more. You can find a full list of all the changes in our feed. So patients, do you think this will improve Doug Ford's decision-making capacity, or is it just window dressing?
1: It's window dressing. Obviously, I think he's just trying to he's trying to get himself ready for for an election. And obviously, he's leveraging the places where he's more likely to lose seats, which is in the the, the cities rather than in the rural areas, because they're not I mean, it's probably less likely for them to swing over. I mean, maybe even maybe Ford is holding a majority right now. I, I see another party holding a majority in the next election, whether it's NDP or Liberal. So, I mean, it's anyone's game, in in my opinion, because of how badly this term has been and how um, how how tumultuous COVID has been for politics in Ontario generally. So yeah. I, I definitely think it's window dressing. I also kind of feel bad for the guy. He doesn't have very... He doesn't have much to choose from. So, you know, doing this little shuffle, I mean... If you live in Peterborough, maybe it makes a really big difference for you. But uh, for the rest of the province, I I mean, I I can't see it making a really big difference.
2: Interesting perspective. I hear you. I think that because of who Doug Ford is, this is more than likely window dressing because he doesn't actually understand how government works and how decision making is supposed to be done sorry and i i guess that is a funny comment but i didn't even mean that to be funny like
1: i know that's why (laughs) why it's even funnier (laughs) like you're stating facts
2: and and, you know just just for perspective just to point out that i'm not being facetious i mean not too long ago earlier this morning i was listening to michael bryant who was the current head of the um civil liberties association when he was formerly uh, the liberal attorney general under the McGinty government. Right. Mm. And, and he, he's somebody who pointed out because of a different, a different circumstance. It wasn't even related to this, that just because of how Doug Ford does things like, yeah, he'll, he'll get advice, but he'll not, he he won't really listen to it. Yeah. And even if he does, he'll interpret it in this incompetent way because he's incompetent. So um, honestly, if it were any other government, I'd say, you know what, this is a good thing. And we might, lead, we might see better decision making. But I, I don't know that that's going to happen. You know, to your point, though, about whether or not there's going to be a new government come next year, I'm not so sure about that. Yeah? Uh, so so far, but uh, he has been able to not only stem the bleeding, but turn it back around again. Even after this lockdown? Basically, right now, he sits at 33%, whereas the Liberals and NDP sit at 27 And so if he continues making the decisions, and by, by the way, I should say for context, I knew ahead of time that he was going to make this decision. It was just a question of who was going to now fold these positions. Yeah. So when you, when you consider the rationale and the expectation of that rationale, it actually probably will work. Right? People will see that there's better decisions. People will see that there's more representation in government, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. Just like they're giving him another chance now, they'll give him another chance next year, unless he does some really messed up things. Now, what I'm waiting to see, Patience, if I'm honest, yeah, is what people really think about Rod Phillips coming back. Because of all the issues people may be uh, upset about, that may actually be the lightning rod issue. Yeah. We'll see. Jumping to the Canadian economy. Here's a little perspective on why we shouldn't fear inflation, or at least based on how it's being circulated in the media. So, patients, you, you do your weekly reading, right? You, you catch up on your current affairs, your policy stuff, maybe some entertainment stuff, your, your financial news, right?
1: Of course. Yeah,
2: me too. But, you know, if we're not careful while soaking up all that information, we can be left downright shooketh. I mean, case in point, At least based on my reading habits, I see a lot of concern about inflation, especially from more conservative sources. Me too. Even CBC plays the game. One of their top articles this week was from Don Pittis, titled, quote, central bankers play down soaring costs of living, end quote, implying that life is mad expensive and the central bankers don't know what the hell they're talking about and it's the end of the world and oh my God, I hate everything. In response to Jerome Powell of the U.S. Federal Reserve this week, or starting to think about cutting back on bond buying, which, as we should know, will slow economic growth down a bit, Don writes, quote, As prices in Canada soared by 3.6%, hot on the tail of U.S. inflation currently running about 5%, it's by no means clear that cutting back on bond buying or quantitative easing will give us back the buying power we've lost over the past few months, end quote. He continues, incredulously, even while prices continue to surge, both Powell and Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklin continue to insist that the inflation we're seeing now is a flash in the pan. Price increases, they say, will head back down toward 2% after the pandemic's distortions have passed, end quote. Except some of the top fund managers in the U.S., if not North America as a whole, seem to agree with the central banker's position. The headline finding in Bank of America Securities popular Monthly Fund Manager Survey, or FMS, is that 72% of active managers believe inflation pressures are temporary, while only 23% say it's permanent. Their bottom line literally said, quote, investors bullishly positioned for permanent growth transitory, meaning disinflation as opposed to deflation, and a peaceful Fed taper. The bottom line I wanted to share is this. Inflation has increased 3.5%, yes, but it's going to fall soon. And in fact, the inflation we've experienced has only been as drastic because we experienced deflation at the onset of the pandemic. Mm. If you look at our economic data from StatsCan, which CBC was nice to do for us, you see that inflation is in fact only 1% of where it should be right now. You know where our target is for inflation patients? No, tell me. It's 2%. Two. Two oh. is our inflation. So that means mm-hmm. we are actually... <laughs> We're expecting it to go higher so we can maintain a healthy economy, right? So context and perspective are everything.
1: Moving on to Blackity Black Black News. So I'm, I'm going to start with a kind of economy and a, a BIPOC story. All right. Because Amazon is in the news this week for its heinous business model. Mm. What grabbed my attention about this article, about the story, was that Amazon is largely powered by workers of color. And in this investigation into the practices of JFK-8, which is a warehouse in New York, Black associates were 50% more likely to be fired than their white peers. So that was what initially kind of drew me into the story. But we all know that the pandemic was Amazon's latest big break, driven by a new kind of sense of a mission to serve customers who were afraid to shop in person, The pandemic helped Amazon smash shipping records, reach crazy heights when it comes to sales, and book the equivalent of the previous three years of profits rolled into one. But what we may not have known is that Amazon has a 150% turnover rate, likely because their model for managing people is heavily reliant on metrics, apps, chatbots, literally removing the human From human resources. The company has touted breathtaking job creation numbers. So yes, they're creating jobs. From July to October 2020 alone, it hired an additional 350 new workers. Mm. More than the population of any kind of small city in Canada. Many of the recruits were hired through computer screening with little or no conversation or vetting. And lasted just days or weeks on the job. Their 150% turnover rate is not something that they are even really worried about. Even though it's double the rate of that industry. So if if you work in logistics or if you work in retail, the turnover rate tends to be closer to 70%. Mm. According to the New York Times, this is part of their strategy. (laughs) Apparently, people work hardest when they first get hired and lose steam over time. So what does Amazon do? Amazon doesn't want you to run out of steam. Once you run out of steam, you run out of a job, fam. Like. (laughs) This is so bad already, but it gets worse. We know that warehouses were one of the places that were most commonly the sites of COVID-19 outbreaks, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But in the case of JFK-8, which should be an indicator of what was happening at other Amazon warehouses, after absences initially soared and disrupt- disrupted shipping, Amazon stopped communicating to workers about the toll of the virus. <laughs> the company did not tell their workers at this particular site of JFK 8 or at other warehouses about the number of cases and only reported to their employees that there were individuals testing positive, which didn't give them an indication as to whether two tested positive 22 tested positive, or 222 tested positive. And while Amazon was saying publicly that they were disclosing confirmed cases to health officials, in this particular case, New York City records showed no reported cases from Amazon until November. This expose that, that you can read more about in the New York Times is expected to really force the hand of Amazon, hopefully influencing them to take on a more humane approach to their workforce A workforce, again, of which is more than 50% people of color. But honestly, I'm not super optimistic about this. Oh, and also, uh, the union drive that we spoke about on this podcast a few months ago was unsuccessful. So Amazon employees have not been able to successfully organize. Any thoughts on this though, Curtis? (laughs)
2: Um, What are we going to do about Amazon? Honestly.
1: Moving on to our next story, more statues came down this week in response to the Kamloops findings. So this is just going to be a short story, but you know, another one of John A. McDonald's statues were removed. Mm. This time it came down in Kingston, Ontario. The Kingston City Council voted to move the statue to storage, move, not remove, as a result of McDonald's role as architect of the residential school system. The statue may not be gone for good. The city is doing some public consultation to determine whether or not the statue will later find a home at the Cataracte Cemetery. This is the cemetery where John A. McDonald is buried. Mm-hmm. Results of that community consultation will be reported back to Kingston City Council on August 10th. It's funny, though, that this whole removal of statues thing is, is picking up steam. But when it was originally requested by the Black Lives Matter movement, nothing was done. Mm-hmm. It's only now that they understand how hurtful these statues are and to what degree do they understand, given that they still have to do public consultation to determine whether or not it can be moved
2: to a secondary site. I was actually going to ask your thoughts on that consultation, because I mean, from the outset, it's like, yeah, these statues need to be put somewhere else. The question of what should be done with them though, it really should be up to the community. Now, you know, the, it should be under the guise that this is a bad statue. <laughs> Let's be clear about that. Right. But it really should be a decision that's made by the community. So I, I think I'm kind of okay with that. Um, mm-hmm. And for it to be in the cemetery where he's buried, I think that makes a lot of sense.
1: I agree with that. I agree that, that putting his statue in a cemetery is more appropriate. Than having it in like a city park, which is where it was, it was moved from a city park or like a family park in Kingston, and it is now being considered for movement into the, the cemetery. Absolutely. Yeah. I just feel like sometimes when we talk about public consultation or community consultation, we aren't clear about how how like what, what's the method. So is it that where you're kind of going to do a, a bit of a, of a of a vote or a tally? where the majority, if the majority of people think it's okay for the statue to, to be put in the cemetery then it just goes there or is is there are people's comments given different weight given you know if, if they're indigenous yeah. or if
2: you know what i mean it definitely has to be a sophisticated process it can't just be a little yeah
1: know,
2: pull a vote out of hat kind of thing
1: Our last story for Blackity Black Black this week is a familiar one. Video footage was released this week of an incident between a Black man and a plain-clothed Toronto cop. The Black man, Chase Richards, was captured on video being held by his neck by a Toronto police detective for 30 seconds and... He, Chase, says that the officer immediately swore and was very aggressive as soon as he arrived on the scene to deal with a fair dispute with a TTC driver. Mm -hmm. Chase Richards, a 40-year-old father of three, took the stand on Thursday in the trial of Detective Christopher Hutchins, a veteran cop who has pleaded not guilty to assaulting Richards during a December 2019 arrest. According to Richards' testimony... Hutchings, as soon as he got onto the scene, said, is this the motherfucker that's causing the disturbance? And then Richard's response said, I'm no motherfucker because I paid my fare.
2: (laughs) I like the rationale. (laughs) That's very (laughs) logical. It is logical.
1: The court has seen TTC surveillance footage showing Hutchings board the bus and within 25 seconds of his arrival. And remember, he's arriving in plain clothes. He's not in uniform. Yeah. According to the Crown he begins to shove Richards against a wall of the bus. Nigel Barif, the president of the Urban Alliance on Race Relations, says the incident underscores the futility of improving training instead of overhauling policing. Straight up. Nigel says simply, quote, you can't reform that kind of behavior to grab this young man's neck? This is why the community doesn't trust the police. End quote brief continues stressing the need to defund police and put the money and put the money towards more appropriate responses. The surveillance footage was first released at Hutchings's trial this week, 18 months after the incident occurred. I, I really want to underscore that Richards got into this ordeal because he was accused of not paying his $3 bus fare. Yeah. After boarding a TTC bus near Markham and Ellesmere. $3. According to Richards, he had entered through the bus's rear rear doors and paid his fare by using the tap option for Presto card users. He took a seat, put his earbuds in, and before he knew it, another passenger was telling him that the driver wanted to speak to him. And when he got up to speak to the driver, uh, Richards said that the driver told him that he smelled of cigarettes and didn't want him riding on the bus. The TTC surveillance video played in court, uh, but that video unfortunately has no sound. So Richards can be seen standing next to and speaking to the driver. And the driver eventually takes the bus out of service and calls Toronto police about a quote disorderly male, end quote, standing beside him and refusing to get off of the bus. I want to reference uh, something that happened to me when I used to frequent the TTC. I remember I was um I was in high school. And I had a metro pass, and I showed my metro pass, uh, and proceeded to get onto the bus. Mm-hmm. And the bus driver told me that uh, because I didn't have my student card to support my my metro pass, that I couldn't get on the bus. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was I proceeded to just get off of the bus. And then he called me back, and he's like, "Actually, I changed my mind." And then he he took the metro pass out of my hand and told me to get off the bus. What? So. This kind of behavior, like for, for TTC drivers to get kind of amped yeah. it is, is a thing when it comes to Black people. I mean, that I know. Yeah, for sure. So this doesn't even surprise me in the slightest. Luckily, I mean, I don't want to say luckily, but given that, given everything that happened in 2020 with George Floyd and, and with this racial reckoning, mm-hmm. there were consequences. Right. So Hutchings... Was suspended with pay, though, mm-hmm. from the Toronto police. He was charged with assault in January 2020, so just a month afterwards, okay. after an internal investigation by the Forces Professional Standards Unit. Seven months later, police laid more charges. So, seven months. Th- think about the timing, right? Yeah. Seven months after after January 2020
2: is when? July, uh, well, August, yeah.
1: Yeah, July, August, 2020. So seven months later, after this, this racial reckoning, the police laid more charges stemming from the alleged assault. Mm-hmm. And Jason Tenuye, Hutchings' partner that night, was also charged with assault. And both he and Hutchings were charged with attempting to obstruct justice. Mm-hmm. That trial is actually scheduled for next year. So just wanted to raise awareness of of this particular case um, sending Chase Richards all of our support yep. from from the drip and, you know, hoping that this kind of behavior will be curbed in the future. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts on this, Curtis?
2: This adds to the list of 270-something, I think it is, Toronto police officers who are uh, currently still on the force, despite the fact that they have Uh, engaged in illegal, violent, destructive behavior towards Mm -hmm. themselves, their families, towards the public at large. Um, And so as you're doing patients, it's very important that we keep track of these people and hold this force accountable through all the bullshit they're trying to tell us about the changes they're bringing into our betterment.
1: Moving on to news from the world. This past week, the Senate unanimously passed a bill making Juneteenth a federal holiday. Hmm. Juneteenth National Independence Day commemorates the end of slavery in the United States and has been celebrated since 1865. In its earliest form, it was actually used to educate recently freed slaves on how to vote and how to become otherwise civically engaged. This move, though, to pass this bill is not surprising, as the bill gained momentum given our current context of a global racial reckoning and a Democratic majority in the White House and in Congress. But it wasn't always like this. Just last year, Republican Senator Ron Johnson blocked this bill, saying, quote, the day off for federal employees would cost U.S. taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars, end quote. This week, that same senator, Senator Johnson, had a change of heart. He told CNN, quote, Although I strongly support celebrating emancipation, I objected to the cost and lack of debate. While it still seems strange that having taxpayers provide federal employees with paid time off is now required to celebrate the end of slavery, it is clear that there is no appetite in Congress to further discuss the matter, end quote. You know what's funny, though, Curtis? I kind of agree with him on this point.
2: Really?
1: Influencers online have been saying that the unanimous passage to federalize Juneteenth is kind of another tokenized victory to avoid doing the real work required of a real emancipation. Things like reparations should be discussed and passed. Things like prison reform should be discussed and passed. So while white people have another opportunity to feel good about themselves and celebrate the formal end of slavery, and and, and I say formal very intentionally, Mm -hmm. they don't have to think about all of the ways in which African Americans remain in chains in that country. One influencer tweeted that, quote, we cannot let Juneteenth become another excuse for Americans to get drunk and mimic a culture that they know nothing about as they do Cinco de Mayo. Mm. Cinco de Mayo is a day that honors the Mexican people resisting being dominated by Europeans, but it is now a day that Americans celebrate with tacos, tequila, and sombreros, end quote. So, like, I don't know, Curtis, where is the lie? Tell me, where is the lie?
2: I, I guess I was just, I didn't... His his rationale and procedural bullshit was just annoying to me because he's like I I don't see uh, why having taxpayers provide a federal employees' pay time off to celebrate a day like he says he says the end of slavery but they do that for other things so why not for the end of slavery that's true but to your but obviously to your point it's like yeah this this is uh, this is tokenism at its finest where it has a the capacity. To become just another tokenistic response. My only thing, I don't want to take away from that perspective. At the same time, though, I think we should be careful not to discount the legislative process in the United States. What do I mean by that? Just because this legislation for Juneteenth passed doesn't mean that the insinuation is that this is being given to shut up black people up, right? Mm -hmm. There is other legislation. There's a suite of legislation regarding black people and the black experience in Congress right now. They're all moving at different paces. I I think that a bill like this is just easier to move. Do you see what I'm saying? For sure. I mean, of course it is. It's, it's, It's simply easier. So that's a byproduct of the fact that it's just an easier bill. I'm not saying that, yes, I'm not saying that it's true that, as has already been pointed out, many times little stuff like holidays will be handed, will be thrown out like a frisbee and that's it. But we should be clear on the realities of the legislative process. That's all I'm trying to say. You, you,
1: you, you pick the low-hanging fruit. Right. Fair. Questions for the audience. 2021 seems to be the year of federally adopted days. In today's episode, we spoke about how Juneteenth, June 19th, has been adopted as a holiday for all U.S. federal government employees. And a few months ago, we discussed how Canada has declared August 1st, Emancipation Day, but without the day off. (laughs) Is it important for these days to be national holidays? Or is the acknowledgement of this chapter in North America's history enough for you?
2: You just listened to episode 63 of The Drip. Thanks so much for joining us, everyone. We're releasing pods on a weekly basis, so subscribe to stay up to date.
1: You can also keep up with us on our Instagram and through our Patreon pages dedicated to the podcast. Follow us or support us at The Drip T.O. We really, really love having such a strong community. Our our non-BIPOC listeners, our BIPOC listeners but i I do want to include a plug for this week Mm -hmm. uh we were attacked on instagram (laughs) this past week (laughs) attacked and we had some allies step up and defend us our voice and our position yes and i really want to thank our community for for standing in for us like that that was amazing
2: yes um did did you have anyone in particular you want to shout out
1: i want to shout out will yeah man Will came in there and was just not letting it happen.
2: Yeah, man. He, he saw the white racist come for us, and he put his white allyship to work. Yes, yeah. thank you. We'd also like to give a special shout-out to Toronto's very own Beyond Location for the sounds you're hearing now. You can find more tracks from him wherever you get your music. See everybody next time.